Hello and welcome back to another episode of Hit the Lights Plus. As usual, it's me, Peter Arrow, and Gary Alder. Hello, Gary. Hello, Pete. You alright? One that I'm really excited for, which is consumer unit etiquette. Explain what that's actually going to be about. It's about not only inside the consumer unit, but the entries and the cable supports going into it. Because quite often I see on Instagram, for example, someone will put up a beautiful picture of a consumer unit. All the bends will have perfect radiuses on it, and it'll look absolutely amazing. And then you'll see all the cables thrown together, no supports, just dogged in the back. And we don't like that. So uh, we're going to talk about what we like to see, how we try to do it. And it'll be quite interesting because me, obviously, from the domestic sector, and Gary's had a little go at industrial in his previous life. So, uh, yeah, straight away then, bring up fire protection. So how would you treat a new consumer unit or distribution board, and what would you do to try and maintain it as a sort of fire compartment? Yeah, so my go-to is always to typically where you've got your gland plates in the distribution board, certainly commercially industries, would always be to put some trunk in and... Typically, you know, if you've got singles or conduits and stuff like that, you know, most of the time you've got uh, metal protection and containment, um, theoretically sealing the, the fire. But where I would say domestically, what I don't see very much of is the actual sealing of the entries. Um, obviously, you see these little push through gaskets um, or grommets or whatever you, whatever you really want to call them. I'm not a big fan of those. I'd much rather see a, you know, a, a fire-rated stuffing gland or something of that nature actually containing the cables into the into the board itself and keeping the integrity of the enclosure. Yeah, I must admit, I know what you're on about. You sort of get like the square blind grommets which fill the prefabricated knockout that the board comes with. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know how much more it would cost to make them of a, you know, a fire protective and intumescent grommet, perhaps. Yeah, I'm not necessarily looking or attacking any manufacturers here. I think it's just a a general thing. I've got no issue with even having knockouts to some extent. If they're positioned well, you know, it's going to save potentially some time. I think, you know, it can ruin if they're too stiff. You end up misshaping the metalwork as well then, don't you? And you end up having to bend it back, which ruins the purpose of a new product. But um, but that's something that I always like to consider and I always typically would go above and beyond to have a, a stuffing gland. Yeah, so let's say you, we do have one of these, let's say, domestic boards with the prefabricated knockouts. Is there a product you could recommend or a type of product without naming any brands you could introduce to get over such a problem? So I don't know of any particular brands, but I think the one thing I do and don't see sometimes is always using the the double insulated tails into the board with the earth uh, stuffing gland, the specific, you know, I think it's like 32 or a 40 stuffing gland. Those I think are very good practice. And too many times you always just see people, you know, taking them through maybe a 20 stuffing gland each and then not slotting it and ruin the IP rating of the board again, changing the fire rating of the board. So I, I like seeing those. I think they're, they're good for, uh, for cable entry. So, yeah, obviously you're talking about um, products. I think I use a TKN32L, which is a reduced packing gland. You can get them in a 40, but obviously most prefabricated holes are 32 mil. So that will take two 25 mil conductors and a 16 mil earth. So, yeah, they're brilliant. And obviously um, 
You mentioned there about taking in the two tails through a 20 mil packing gland and then slotting it, which obviously we, we shouldn't do because of any currents. But um, the slot isn't something that a lot of domestic electricians know about. They just think you can't do that because of obvious reasons. But obviously, industrial practice would be to enter a trunking and to slot the top to remove the chance of any currents or to put it through a non-ferrous plate. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously because it's in the trunking, you've got the, the basic insulation, which then can go down into the enclosure itself. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and then um, is there any sort of specific terminations that you do for different sorts of cables within a consumer unit? I mean, for me, having been brought up like on the panel side, I always like to see ferrules. Now, I know there's this whole stranded, single-core debate that goes on, but I don't know whether it's an OCD thing, but it irritates me to see some with it, some without. So I would just, regardless, I would put it on all of them just for neatness. So you're saying whether it's a stranded cable or whether it's a multi-fine flex, you would uh, ferrule them regardless? Yes. So that's interesting because I, I would actually disagree with you there because I'm all for ferruling the multi-fine strands. However, I prefer to spray a stranded conductor, especially in a cage terminal. So let's say my meter tails, I will compress them with pliers to take out the compression and then I will go into the, the cage terminal and tighten them up. Mm. But I suppose it's horses for courses, you're going to make it a solid conductor either way. Um, yeah, there's no um, right or wrong with that one. Um, it, I think it comes down to preference on that one. Right. And what about um, tightening up? Are you a believer in torque screwdrivers? A bit controversial, I know, but... It is probably a bit controversial. I wasn't uh, trained on using them during my apprenticeship and stuff. Um, I've very much always been a, a hand tight and then one. Yeah, so I would say it wasn't really a commercially um, recommended product until around the Amendment 3, 17th Amendment 3 boards came out. They were probably yeah. around, but I think they really got the big push at that point. Because obviously the fires caused, that's why we went from plastic to non-combustible boards. I never was. I was same as you. There, my old sort of mentor, his phrase was "tight's tight and too tight is broken." Yeah, which I, I can understand. But now I, I do torque everything. I have a couple of different torque drivers and that. I've got a Wheel one, which is really good, and the CK also has its uses. But um, I normally torque everything walk away and then I'll come back and talk it again just to double double check yeah no one of the one of the things that uh, irritates me slightly is seeing people use um, impact guns Oof, um, yeah yeah <laughs> um, in electrical equipment um, I know it takes longer but do it by hand yeah I have that so well I don't use it to talk them do I I just use it to tighten up the screw a bit I think well, yeah but no no don't do that if, if anyone uses an impact driver, please, please stop. <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's no good. And then something that I miss, which I know some manufacturers still implement, is the double screw. So like a meter, uh, sorry, a main switch always used to have a double screw on it. And that seems to have gone. And I think that has really ruined the integrity and the strength given. Whereas I think um, Wilex do them now. But even if you look at an old Wilex 3036 board, the old wooden back box is better connection to the copper 
and there's obviously a fail safe. If one screw doesn't make adequate contact or it's not quite as it should be, you've got a secondary one, which also just gives you that added safety benefit. I would agree. The only contradiction I would say is that then when do you stop not having a second screw? Yeah, and I suppose I suppose the less current you use, the less risk this goes to the old arc and spark debate. The more current you pull in, the greater chance you're going to have of causing yep. a fire, a high resistance joint. So, I mean, I would go as far to put them on to MCBs or RCBOs as well. I would like a double screw, ideally, but I probably wouldn't be overly bothered about having them accessories. So, double socket switches and the like. Yeah, I'd agree on the buzz bar connections in consumer yeah. units. Yeah. Yeah, and that. No, I was going to say, one of the things I was going to mention, you made me kind of think of it, is uh, you see it um, particularly in the Schneider uh, isobar uh, distribution boards. I don't know if you've ever seen them. But you have the caps on the buzz bars that can uh, energise and de-energise. Yeah, no, no, they're good. I've seen them. I, I've actually fitted one, so yeah. don't stop tiring me with your I'm a domestic <laughs> sparks brush. They're high yeah. on my and everything. But, yeah, no, I, I do know what you want about. They are very good. And like you say, even on the main switch, I know some of them, which I really like, it's sort of a pet peeve of mine as well, but um, identification of the conductors going into the top of the main switch, some people strip them back to expose the red and the black or the blue and the brown, mm. which I don't agree with. I believe it should be single sheet, single lane sighted, all the way up to the main switch, and it does actually state that in the on-site guide to do it that way. So either put a bit of sleeve in on it or you know, Sharpie pen or label, but also on the main switch, some manufacturers come with the, the sliders on them as well, because when you've got the cover off, it's still going to be live, and it just eliminates that issue. Of yeah. Accidental. Yeah, I think the sliders were a fantastic um, little thing to have in the distribution boards, to be honest. It's a shame that more suppliers don't put them in now. Yeah, bring back sliders. And then have you ever fitted one of these meter tail clamps? Because I must say, I haven't. I've seen people use them, but it's not something I've ever... No, I haven't. Sorry. Well, that's a, that's a short conversation then. It's a, <laughs> what do you think on them? Because I, I don't know if I like them. Because then a loose conductor can still be loose in the terminal. And why should they need to be clamped? Because surely the support of the cable before that should prevent any dislodging. I'll be perfectly honest. I haven't got much experience with them. Um, typically the stuff I'm doing commercial industry is, is all CT, you know, based and stuff like that, proper yeah. size stuff. So I'm not having a lot to do with those sorts of clamps. Proper, proper size stuff. <laughs> stuff, you know, real meaty, proper electrics, not like what us domestic boys deal with. No, that's right. Well, blanks. There's one for you on a consumer unit. So there's the three types I've got down here, which is the plastic clipping ones. I've seen the metal clipping ones, and you can also get the plastic... Um, Modular ones, which actually sit onto the boss bar on the DIN rail. Yeah. So, so do I, you have I a preference? Like, yeah, I do. I like the modular ones. Um, Eaton typically make those. Um, and, yeah, really like those. I think they're, they are spot on. Yeah, no, I agree. And then there is always an argument saying, well, you can get the metal clippings, and obviously they are metal. And I say, yeah, but the MCB or the overcurrent protective device is always going to be plastic and... The old clippings can also clip out. Yeah, and I think when when you get even even if it's metal or 
plastic, I think the fact that someone can remove it without actually having to remove the cover um, yeah. is, is something for me. Um, I quite like the, the fact that you know they, they protect not only the enclosure, but the brass bar as well, so you don't have any exposed parts internally. Uh, I agree. And there is a debate I've had before with people on Twitter and that saying about um, how you have to physically remove the buzz bar to get them in. And some people like that you have to remove it and some people like that um, don't like that you have to remove it because of ease of use and that. But I always think that because it is from the main switch and protected by the incoming fuse to give it as much protection as possible during any maintenance work and such, it can only be a benefit. Well, certainly the Eaton ones that I've seen um, don't have uh, or require, should I say, the buzz bar to be removed. No, no, I agree. It's good. I Well, the ones I fit domestically, they do because obviously we're a bit more limited to space. So that's what I've done. One topic I did want to bring up was um, emergency lighting. Obviously, I know in your game you should have an emergency lighting system where you have an emergency light in the room Obviously, power failure or anything that's going to come on and help you out. But I've seen a few people that domestically, and there's also a couple of boards that have it built in. But what do you think about that? I think it's a good idea. Sensible. Um, you'll probably struggle to locate one. I don't know how they locate them in the board, potentially. Um, but I can understand if it's, say, under the stairs or in a cupboard or, or something like that, to having that there in the event of a power loss. It just makes sense, even for the for the customer, um, to be able to see what they're doing, to be able to flick the switch back on even. Yeah, it's a good idea. If you start bringing in these different regulations into the um, domestic field, though, domestic electricians are going to have to get more familiar with the standards. And, that, you know, is it going to be tested, you know, for duration, three hours every um, six months? Yeah, it's, it's, it yeah becomes... no, it's one of those. I wouldn't necessarily say it was there for emergency lighting. It's, what's that, 5266? It is. But um, it's more there for convenience as opposed to a regulation. So would you consider it good practice to do so? Anything above and beyond to make life simpler, I think, is good practice. Yeah. I, I do query that if you're going to start installing equipment whether it's used for that purpose or not, it, it's got to comply with the standard, hasn't it? So uh, let's say me and you're on a job, domestic job, huge, huge one-bedroom flat, and um, we've got a bit of space. So I turn to you and say, Gary, what do you reckon? Shall we just stick an emergency light above there? You know, it's 30 quid or so. We'll just put it on the bill. Yeah, what, I'd, I'd say do, do it. I'd say do it. Well, then I'm going to be straight on. Well, who's testing it? Should we put an emergency key switch in? Yes, you should put a key switch in. Yeah, who's paying for that? I don't know. You you decided you wanted it in for extra thirty quid. That was the budget you told me. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I'm now holding you. That's a verbal contract. Uh, well, you're the governor. You've got to sort it all out. I'm just a monkey. Come on. Well, yeah, I'll order it. See, yeah, on the, it's on its way already. It's on its way. All right, we're going in. Now, it was just an interesting thing I'd seen on a few people do, and I, I, I kind of like it. I just wanted to get a second opinion on it, really. Yeah, I kind of like it. I mean, my preference isn't necessarily, you know, like you have the 8-watt uh, maintained bulkhead sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I would much rather see, you know, people have started incorporating the spots into their houses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think that's a nice touch if you can facilitate that or if you need to facilitate that because you have maybe a particularly large house 
or um, you know, in the event of a fire, things aren't going to necessarily be clear. So we're going um, one further here. You're saying it may actually be a good idea to install some level of emergency lighting in a domestic premises. Well, yeah, I think if you're vindicating it for for one reason, why not for any other reason? Yeah. All right, we've mentioned it. You poo pooed it. We're off. Um, yeah. Labelling. There we go. Oh yeah. I like a label. Of course you do. Love Love knowing what's what. Who's doing what? Yeah. Um, I'm going to start this actually. I think there should be more labels. There's not enough space for what we have already. I find by the time you've um, put all the labels that is required by BS7671, it looks like my three-year-old's toy that he stuck stickers all over. Yeah. But um, I also feel like there is room for more, as in we should be providing details of more. We should be saying about isolation points because um, I did a job recently and there was two isolators for a boiler. The lady is um, visually impaired, boiler isolator within two metres, but inaccessible to her. So we put a secondary one out in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And it is in the documents. It is a pen, you know, it's next to the consuming unit and a little wallet. But domestically, people say, oh, I don't want that there. They'll take it down, they'll put it in a drawer, and that is where it will stay forever. So when the next electrician comes along to maintain the system, he's not going to have a clue what's going on. And he might think he's isolated it somewhere and then he'll get an issue. So there's always plenty more reasons. So um, also the other one with labelling is um, circuit charts, because in a lot of sticker packs you can now buy come with circuit charts. But is there enough information on them? I always like to... Again, leave it the whole certificate and any other documentation next to the consumer unit, sort of like a little O&M's manual. But uh, just interested to hear industrially what sort of notices you'd put next to the board. Um, I think well, typically it'll be all the same labels you'd expect domestically in a distribution board. Like yourself, I mean, it's good practice. I don't see it, I haven't seen it very often to have a full certificate um but typically you know like the old nic software um used to actually be able to print out a, a specific db schedule or chart um i know like the amtec software does that so you can just immediately what we would have done would be laminate that um and put that on something i was developing with the company which is typically done in the water industry was uh, putting qr codes on all the equipment and then when you scan that it would take you to a link to all the certification um, on a web on a website, so that that was something I was trying to develop with labelling, but it, it was quite time consuming in terms I of. I must admit, I've seen someone that if it's Twitter or Instagram recently do that or suggest that, but then they were saying, what about the GDPR issues that may face because you've obviously got all the client details, the installers' details, so on with that, so. But but I mean you say you say that how is anyone ever going to access it other than through the QR code and there's no reason to say you couldn't password it. But then you've got the same issue. Someone needs to get the password, don't they? But yeah, no, I understand. If someone's in the yeah, property, yeah. it's very unlikely someone's going to try and burgle your house to get your circuit chart details. No, exactly. Um, I think or well they could if they wanted to turn off your security. Um, but yeah, uh, one one of the one of the things typically we always did was laminate a circuit chart 
and put that inside the cover, um, you know, because they're, they're the fully upright boards like your Schneiders, and it'd just yeah. be inside the door giving you all the information. Then what we would typically do in terms of not necessarily labelling but identification is internally within the board, you know, you'd have the, um, not the ferrules, uh, like the little ident, cable yeah. idents. No, I don't run a bit. Yeah, so we'd be putting those on, you know, to every circuit, whether it was 1L1, 2L2, or whatever it is, um, and just be identifying those cables, circuit chart references, so it all tied up, no matter what you're looking at, even if circuits were swapped around, you you would know that that cable still had that reference and you could go back to that schedule. Yeah, no, I must admit, on the identification subject, something I do like to see is identification of your um, earthen conductor and of your bonds and what they go to, even if it's just a G and a W or an O on the cable, just to give you some sort of inclination as to what you're testing. When I've done a lot of commercial industrial testing and specs, it's the easiest, obvious, you know, first point of call when you're doing a ZS. Right, you go to the earth bar, right, there's about 20 earths, including you know, God knows how many supplementary ones that are just bunged into there because it was the next lo- yeah. local thing for earthing. And then you end up having to sift through and try and identify them. Luckily, most earths, certainly industrially, will go to a, a disconnection link or a dual disconnection link earth bar, so it's quickly identifiable. But certainly domestically, it can be a nightmare if um, things aren't readily identified and they go into a wall. Yeah, I was going to say, cause that's something that a lot of people don't know, is it? That the MET, you should have a removable link between your earthen conductor and the rest of the bonds or earths or CPCs. Obviously, domestically, we can just undo a screw and take it out, but with the bigger industrial crimp or clamp-on ones, it's um, you have a little swing almost, don't you? A little hook-on link. Yeah, yeah, it's like a little detachable link that goes to the next connection along. And any other things in terms of labelling? I think there's probably lots of labels that I don't see on distribution equipment, um, like you've kind of mentioned, you know, voltage, um, isolation are typically ones I don't see. You'll always see your next inspection one. Um, some Most of the time you see RCDs. Don't tend to see harmonisation that often. Um, it no. really crop, crops up it's in an interesting track. one on the RCD subject because different manufacturers now state different. I mean, the old Luden ones, they were test monthly when mm. it was still a quarterly test. But now we obviously stick on a six-monthly RCD test. But it shouldn't say six-monthly in my opinion. It should say as per manufacturer's instructions. Because they're all different. Some do, some are six, some are three, some are one, some are obviously a lot more often. So mm. you should have maybe a, a space for you to an uh, interval no greater than six months, but in accordance with manufacturer's instructions. Yeah, I mean, is there any way potentially we could reduce the wording of some of this stuff um, to create more space for ourselves? I must admit, it does sound very engineering talk as opposed to, you know, Mrs. Brown at home. Yeah, it does, yeah. Well, that cable ties, that's another very controversial topic. Some people use them all the time, and other people say you should never use a cable tie or a zip tie because we shouldn't say cable ties. It upsets the cables. For me, it was never taught to put them in the boards. I would prefer, or the way, the way I used to get around making my boards neat was, you know, you get panel trunking with the finger slots, um would be to put two of those like if you had a say a three-phase board 
one down each side of the uh, the MCBs. Um, and then you can control the sweep of the cable coming in. It keeps it all looking neat. Um, at any point, you could take the lid off, fish out your cable. Um, obviously, it can look very neat putting them inside the boards. But I think if you're bunching them together, you've got the heat. It might not be much of a consideration, but it's still a consideration. No, um, so my preference would be to not. And if you ever have to, if I went into a board and I had a fault and I saw everything was cable tied, I'd be really annoyed so that I'd have to undo it all. And I'm not putting it back either. So it's just one of those things where I think if you want to use them to form a cable to make it all very nice and neat, fine. But for me, it's a no. Yeah, I'm the same. I've seen um, faults where they've been bound so tightly, even in a small domestic setup, it's actually started to melt the sheathing off and the cable ties actually started to touch the copper inside mm. to make it like one big conductor. So that's it's pretty bad. I like a bit of air, a bit of breathing space. And um, I like, you know, so I'm not for doing things neat. If you want to use cable ties, that's fine, but don't really squeeze them tight allow a little bit of wiggle room same when you're doing it you know in your trunking or whatever always like to leave a, you know we use we should select a bigger size trunking to allow for these thermal effects which actually nicely moves on to my next question and i know we've spoke about this before but um over current protective device spacing so on my boards obviously i'll allow a little thermal gap in that but i know you've said that really you should design your circuits so that they don't go over the thermal capabilities of what the breaker is you should allow for thermal spacing i don't remember saying that well what you actually said is that the manufacturers should make something good enough to bloody take yes yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah I, th- I i think if look the, the way current uh fuse balls or consume units whatever you want to call them um manufactured positions them together if if that's the case and then we're then told there's a derating factor for them then it's the, what they've sold us is no good mm-hmm. um so you know it's no good if i can only use every other way of the of the buzz bar either make me do that by having a buzz bar that can only use every other way or find some sort of spacing device or something you know, whether it's you clip onto a DIN rail and it physically holds the breakers apart from each other yeah. um, or, or something of that sort of nature. I agree that the free air needs to be a consideration. And if the manufacturers tell us that needs to be a consideration, fine. But what they're doing at the moment is not fit for purpose. That's fair enough. I mean, personally, I actually feel like it's a get out of jail free card. I don't know there will ever be a problem, but it just eliminates that if there ever was to be a problem, they could say, oh, well, you haven't done a free airspace. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. But um, I would also understand that it's very unlikely to have breakers simultaneously pulling full current at the same time, which could go down to a diversity question. But I, I mean, the main reason I do it is, one, to comply with manufacturer's instructions, but two... It makes it a lot easier to second fix because you've got a bit more space. One of the things to consider, obviously, we're talking about temperature, would be the position of a, of a consumer unit and the ambient temperature of the room, as it is anyway. What if you're stuck it outside in the freezing cold? Um, mm-hmm. that, that would have an impact on the devices, particularly in winter, if we're at zero or lower. Um, I think, obviously, the, the current capacity goes right up when it gets below zero. But again, 
should we be factoring that in um, when when you're designing as per your location that a temperature may go or may increase? You know, we're do we're making assessments and judgments on yeah. the cables, but not on the boards. No, I mean it's all based on a biometallic strip inside the breaker normally on an MCB, for example, isn't it? So different ambient temperatures will have an effect on it. So if let's use our car charger for example, if we're pulling 30.7 amps and it's a 32 amp breaker and it's a really hot summer's day, it could overload. Yeah. So yeah, it's all down to your design, I suppose. And that, well, that's exactly it. You end up uprating, going for a 40. Everything only gets bigger. That's right. That's thermal for it. And well, there's one more which I want to sort of bring into a, to our conclusion, which is certification and reporting. So I know when you did your spout of domestic works, you did a lot of board changes. Mm-hmm. So a um, bit of a divide in the industry. You go to do a board change, you are changing the old 3036s or 3871s to a 60898 or 61009. So you are effectively leaving the installation safer than it was before. But do you do an ERCR beforehand or not? I always did. I didn't do it necessarily as a recorded document, but before I started, I would always do, you know, preliminary testing. Um, so I'm probably in between. I'm not going to go and charge, you know, a, a couple extra hundred quid on top of the board change to tell them what's right or wrong, because as you said, I'm going to be putting it into a safer position than it already is. But I want to know what I'm dealing with so that if, say, halfway through a ball change I realised I don't know there's a conductor missing for X, Y and Z or there's a junction box out uh, in the middle of nowhere that shouldn't be reconnected up or you know something like that that I won't relive on that circuit and it's just having it's just giving myself that awareness and knowledge of the, the installation prior to uh, actually commencing and ripping it all out and then making decisions halfway through so you would you you say you would just do the electrical tests or would you do an inspection with that as well? Uh, the inspection probably wouldn't be as thorough. I'd do the tests, mm-hmm. 100% I'd do the tests, but the inspection would probably be a walkthrough as I did the tests. Yeah, okay. It's just, um, I'm trying to remember the reg now, but somewhere it states about upgrading the bonding before carrying out other work. Mm. Because I actually had another electrician reinstall the board and he left the six mil bonds there, but it was a hundred amp TNCS head on twenty five mil tails. But it was only six mil bonding. Yeah. So by rights he should have upgraded that prior to or at the same time of upgrading the board. Yeah, and typically I always upgraded the bonds as well. It was always part of the price. Yeah. No, I'm not great. I'd always do that. But um, I never used to, but I've started to do EOCRs as well as changing the board. More yeah. often than not, I have an apprentice with me as well, so it makes it a bit more manageable time-wise. So, yeah, we've um, upgraded the board, done a preliminary test with an EICR. I would then also issue an EICR as well as a new EIC. So, I've got a question for you. Okay. How... To me, that seems like a bit of a contradiction because yeah. if, say, you highlighting something, for instance, I don't know, an issue with a circuit, and then your which one would supersede as 
the most recent document? Well, it would be the ERCR first. That would flag up any issues, and I wouldn't carry on if there were issues. Right, okay. So I'd do the ERCR, and I'd say, look, um, Mr. Smith, you have X, Y, and Z issues in the bathroom, so I cannot do the board change unless I'm also going to rectify that. Okay, because, yeah, so that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I yeah. thought you meant just regardless if you'd have just done the work, you'd issue both certificates or documentation. No. I mean, we did a job recently. Um, I went up with a, a colleague, and we were there to do a board change and an EICR and make it past the EICR. Mm-hmm. So anything we found, I was on the phone to the client saying, look this, look that, look this. But we were there for a period of time to do all of the works. So all I could do would, would be an, an ongoing sort of verbal contract with the client that I then verify on an email. But we ended up changing all the downlights because of thermal damage, all the switching was wrong, there was borrowed neutrals and all sorts of problems. But we were there to do the job. So all of that got included. And then what I did is I issued a satisfactory EICR, which sort of worked as after the EIC had been done. So we'd done a board change and the EICR then worked out after that. So I mean, if it was satisfactory, I mean, were you not able to just include all that information within your install certificate rather than issuing two documents? Well, they needed it for the PRS, didn't they? Satisfactory result. Ah, uh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah, so the EIC wasn't really what we were there to do. It just happened as part of the other works. So I could have issued a unsatisfactory EICR and then issued the EIC showing that we had done all the unsatisfactory items and that would have worked because it would cancel out the other work. Yeah. But just for the sake of it saying satisfactory, we did it the other way around. Because right. no one likes seeing those big red letters on the front of a report, do they? No, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree probably with the first way. I would always do issue an unsatisfactory report and then demonstrate you've done it. Um, is there a better way of doing that, do you think? That maybe if we're issuing um, a certificate to close out another report, we could in some way have a wording that shows installation now satisfactory or something like that? I normally just do a, um, just something with my headed notepaper on a letter by me saying X, Y, and Z has been completed and I now report that the installation is satisfactory. Fair enough. We've probably gone a bit off topic, haven't we, really? Yeah, but, <laughs> well, it's just all part of it, isn't it? One leads on to the other. It's all the same. So mounting, I want to talk about. So when you come to fix a consumer unit to a wall, would you mount it on an intermescent board or would you be happy or would it depend on, obviously, the fire compartmentation? I think it depends on what you're working with. T- typically, um, if it's a sealed board in its in- entire integrity um, is maintained when fixing, then I would just probably fix whatever material is there. Typically, it's going to be brick or something like that, isn't it? So I suppose in an industrial environment, you're going to be within a fire compartment anyway, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, but I can, you know, so I can, domestically, we've... Um, I've started to build a uh, boxing, so I'll do a batten around, ply face it, and then I'll put a fire line plasterboard over the top. Okay. And then what I've done, because I'll put some pictures up soon, to be honest, but I brought all the cables through the back, through a, a plyboard sheet, and then I'll fill that with the fire putty. Right, okay, yeah. 
just to try and maintain a fighting part. I'll do that. But then that's my other question is what do you think is um, rear entry or top entry? Every time you look in the back of a, of a, a domestic unit, you, you know, you can always see through to next door. So, you know, I typically if, if, if cables are coming down some sort of, not necessarily a riser, but some sort of gap in the in the building fabric that where you know if there's a fire in that consumer unit okay it's metal it's sealed the file but that fire is going straight out that back hole and up into the building um into the void so you know too often they're not sealed for me so i always prefer top entry maintain the the back bring the cables in through stuffing glands and then you don't have to do all this extra work with putty or anything like that yeah no i agree with that i prefer that and um someone else again i've had um electricians and the local wholesalers i brought it up i said can you not buy like an intumescent pad that i could have all my cables coming through put the pad on it then fix the board over the top and there's some bloke in there i'll do a terrible impression of him but he's like nah fella what you got to do is like get all that fire foam and you've got to squirt it everywhere and you and fill it all up <laughs> and that. i was like no no don't because it all expands it comes through into the board it goes everywhere it's horrible i said i can understand it for a use for closing up holes but there's better products out there mm. it's it's not gonna you know so i'd rather use the intermittent pad or the pillows or something but yeah i agree with you where possible a bit of trunk in along the top because then it's maintainable as well yeah not pvc trunking though if it's uh domestic i don't like seeing pvc there's, there's zero point well, it keeps all your cables together. So, well, so. yeah, it does. But what's, So if you've got an opening from your board into your uh, PVC trunking, what's the difference? You might as well have a plastic consumer unit. Well, no, because, well, I went on a Amendment 3 Hager Tech Talk, and on there, the guy, I can't say his name because I don't know who he was, but he said the knockouts are acceptable. He said you can have all the knockouts of a board off and that's still considered acceptable because you've maintained so much of it. That was his words. Yeah, no, no, fair, fair abouts. Where I'm coming from is we're on about preventing the spread of fire. Yeah. So if we leave a load of holes in the top, if, if it's not even IP2X, how can we say that will stop prevent? A fire when it can't even stop a finger going in a hole. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm only doing it for the conversation. No, no, no I'm, yeah. I'm just making the point. It's one of those. So if you could get a, a powdered, a white powder coated metal trunk in, brilliant. But it's one of those. It's time is money and everything. You're in the um, back in Mrs. Brown's cupboard. She's got all her coats over the top of the fuse board. I'm with you. You get a fire in the board straight up through the plastic. All the coats are up. Whole house is up. So, to me, what's the difference in having a plastic board or a metal board when it's still got all the coats over it, it's under the stairs, so really, if that was a codable situation, you'd think a C3, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I, and that's, that's part of the, the, the issue, really, is that you see a lot of, lot of guys, obviously, out there use PVC trunking, and I understand why they do, because aesthetically and domestically, it looks right, it's fitting. Um, I, I just think some sort of other management has to be done for how the cables are coming from. Even if it is a grommet inside the board, a fire protective grommet that the cables come through before exiting into the PVC trunking. 
Yeah, no, I think it'd be good if we could start seeing some more incumescent grommets being introduced. Or if they are out there, please let me know because I don't know of any. Neither do I. No, so it'd be good to be, be getting them. And as I said, the putty's all right, but it's messy. Yeah, and it always becomes an issue, doesn't it? The next time somebody else wants to put something in, it'll, it just gets easily destroyed and removed and and generally never put back. No, exactly. So it's uh, something worth bearing in mind. But yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the metal trunking would be better, but you'd have to then try and price into, again, bearing in mind domestically is a very cutthroat industry because there's always someone cheaper. If you're then pricing for a proper consumer unit with proper maintenance and EICR, a proper certificate, proper tests, and then say, oh, yeah, I'm going to put some uh, steel conduit in as well, which, as we all know, you would also bond. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's going to be a couple of hundred quid difference between you and someone who's just going to throw in a quick, cheap DIY brand board, let's say. The only thing I'll say to that is there's cheap and then there's right. Yeah, I completely agree. So, like, by all means, they can get someone to chuck it in, but it'll only cost 200 quid extra to get someone back and get it compliant when it's inspected and they can't sell their house. And there you have it, from the horse's mouth. How dare you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for another one. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, see you on the next one. Is there any man that owns a pig farm?